foot enthusiasts, minimal footwear lovers, or anyone trying to fix your own feet, I'm heading to North Carolina this May to lead a live, in-person, three-day retreat all about feet. I'm going to be at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. And are you ready to hear what I'm calling it? The retreat is called Healing Your Soul, a stepwise approach to building forever functional feet. That's so good, right? If you want to learn all about how to take care of the muscles, bones, joints, fascia, and nerves of the feet, and learn how strong feet and ankles relate to sustainable hips and knees, this event is for you. In addition to the classroom and movement time with me, you're on retreat. So there's delicious meals, a nature-rich campus that you can explore on foot, and plenty of time for rest and relaxation, all included. A retreat is a perfect way to care for yourself in the moment, but also in the future. You are coming to learn a massive toolkit of information. So whether you're a competitive runner, a dynamic ager, or a healthcare practitioner, this is a weekend full of movement for you and your feet. And like I said, you're gonna leave with a toolkit and a big swag bag that you can use to train your feet for life. For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website, nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. This is Katie B, and you are about to listen to an early episode of my podcast. Now the show is called The Move Your DNA Podcast, and you can find all episode transcripts and the show notes to this episode at nutritiousmovement.com slash podcast. Enjoy. Podcast, where movement geek Danny Hammett, that's me, joins biomechanist Katie Bowman, author of Move Your DNA, for discussions on body mechanics, movement nutrition, natural movement, and how movement can be the solution to modern ailments we all experience. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm standing. Excellent. I'm standing. <laughs> I'm still standing. I'm standing barely after my long birthday trek. Of That's right. You went more than 30 miles, didn't you? Yes. Due to emergency survival need, we ended up going more like 37 miles. I'm sorry. What kind of emergency survival need would necessitate extra mileage? What? The necessitation was brought about by, because we walked, we left the town that we lived in and essentially hiked up to the national forest. The last... Wow. Seven or eight miles were on this section. We were, we're fortunate in that we have 120, about 120 miles of what's called the Olympic Discovery Trail. And it's all paved, groomed, laid out pretty well off-road. Very rarely in most of it are you walking on the freeway. And then the areas that we checked were kind of through farms and around around different public lands and whatnot. But the last section of it, after we get went across the Elwall River, which is a big river here, is what's called the Adventure Trail. And it's a 25-mile portion of this Discovery Trail. The Discovery Trail is the paved part. The Adventure Trail is the 25 unpaved miles that are up in the mountains. And it's gorgeous. It's aptly named. Though. Yes, it is. And it's and it's ram. Everything else is kind of flat and grim. This was like rambling. Go, uh, saw nobody. I mean, it was... It was great. However, when we were figuring out how where we're going to go and how far we were going to go, we used Google Maps, you know, like everyone, and and to see where other roads were going to intersect because it's mostly rural. This adventure trail, what's intersecting it are these small. I think they're essentially forest roads, forest service roads, or public roads. They're not all paved, but they're 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 fire roads and logging roads, and there were only two of them that intersected this entire nine mile span. So we figured we had to go a little bit beyond thirty just to match up with the roads. So we were already going to do like thirty one and a half, a little bit more than thirty one and a half. And when we got to that thirty one mile marker, luckily we had self service. 
you know, I was calling my husband. I'm like, okay, we're almost there. I can barely walk. Can't wait to see you. <laughs> and he's like, all right, I'm almost there. And then like five minutes later was the text. The roads are closed. Oh. They were. Oh. I know. I know. You can... Oh, you. I know. And it was, so we had already been walking for over 10 hours. Oh Sun gosh. was going down. And this was a realization that. Our our exit strategy <clears throat> had been thwarted, so so all of these roads were essential. I mean, and it wasn't like my husband. That's actually kind of when it hit adventure status. You know, that's right when there. it was like, yeah, a whole other. <laughs> oh, oh, now the adventure. Yeah, has <laughs> and unfortunately, my legs have no more ability to contract. Yeah, so it was the mm. I can't come get you, and and like there, there's no other solution, right? You're not downtown. You're not like you're in the forest. There are no roads. The sun is going down. You can barely walk. And guess what? You have to walk seven miles. And and because where we were, hiking back out the trail wouldn't have taken us to any point where we could interact. And our cell phones were almost dead. That was the sad thing was like, it was a preparation cluster. Like I, It'll never happen to me again because I just, my friend and I were talking about it. Like I just got super comfortable with depending heavily on technology. I mean, like the fact that we would have had, what would have happened if we had no cell service? Like we hadn't even checked if there were cell service. It was ridiculous, but it was a good example of there's only one way out of this forest. And that is to turn around and hike two more miles when I had already hit my limit or the limit that I thought, right. I thought I had hit my limit, but it turns out in survival, you can muster and it's like, no one can come in. There's only you and I'm not sleeping here in the woods. We don't like it's freezing. And so, yeah. So it turned into an additional, a bonus, a bonus seven miles. So I actually ended up walking more closer to the 39 miles that would have been a conclusion of my 39th year. But yeah, it was a, it was a good, funny how that it was a good out. metaphor. I'm like, I'm sure someone's yeah. playing a joke on me here, but yeah, it was great, but I'm standing wow. in it. And uh, I think I'm going to write a blog post about it. Cause everyone's like, what shoes oh, did you please. wear? What was it like? I'm like, Oh, maybe that'll be my first blog post in a while. It's Cause I haven't had the time, but anyway, what we do have time to do today is talk about bones. Bones. You know, we've done bone episodes before, right? Didn't we do something on athletes and bone density? I remember talking about cycle. Oh, it was the cycling show. It was the cycling. We just kind of okay. touched on yeah. that. So um, I get a lot. Of- but we've never really devoted just one to bones. One full show to bones. So that's what this one's going to be, right? It's going to be. Yep. Let's talk about bones. I think that, and of course, like most of the stuff that we do, it's not going to be like a show on osteoporosis as much as bigger context. That's what I like so much mm-hmm. about what you and I get to talk about is what is osteopenia and osteoporosis bone loss. But th- these are just like the words that we talk about it with because of our insurance, you know, and, and how, how <laughs> things get paid. So I think let's start with how bones are shaped and that bones are shaped by how you move. And I have said this a lot. Your bones are an autobiography. You you are writing your autobiography in your bones right now. And if you have an area of low bone density, and it would be something that you would only know if you had had a DEXA, which is a particular type of scan or a bone density test, I guess there are other, okay. there are other ways to estimate it. Bone density, low bone density, osteoporosis or osteopenia is it's really a site-specific situation. Osteoporosis and osteopenia, in the way that the terms are used, it's not like you have a bone disease. You, you don't have a, you do not have a problem with how your bones are regenerating. It's a site-specific and, lack. Go ahead. And that's really important, I yes. think, for us. I'm so glad we're going to dig into that because it is interpreted as just a disease. Sure. Because it's a diagnosis. With no mechanics to it. Yeah, I think that's what I would love to get into and that fascinates me. Thank you. Yeah, the whole I have osteoporosis. I'm like, okay, well, osteoporosis is really just a word given for, you know, a mathematical measure, a statistical measure of how how your bone density compares in one particular area to other people's. It is not a condition where your body stops generating bone. So we know that 
it's not just a disease. It's, it's how you've been moving. And I think a lot of people think, well, it's, it's nutrients too. You know, I just didn't get enough nutrients and we know that you need both the movement and the nutrient, but let's just kind of dive into it and, and focus on the fact that not focus on the fact, but bring up the fact that osteoporosis and osteopenia are touted as women's disease as a women's disease, but all sorts of people can get it. Well, men, yes. Children and kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're, you know, I think it, it has been kind of touted as like, you need more calcium or more vitamin D because that's, that's the issue, right? If you have low bone mineral density, then it's like, well, then you just need more bone, the minerals that go into bone. So just eat more of those. And in some cases in, in developing countries or people who have significant nutritional deficiencies, it could be that you have all of the signals of build bone and none of the nutrients to build it. You, you definitely need both. Okay. Um, but that being said, you cannot lie in bed and eat all the minerals and those minerals don't go into <laughs> your bone. Like they're not, they're not being stuffed into your bones. They're being used. They keep up the density because you need it. If you don't use your bones, it's a, it's not efficient to have heavy, strong bones that are not supporting you. So you have to kind of think about bone density and bone robusticity, which we'll talk about more as a, a response to the way that you are behaving. And yes, it's always like, it seems to always be like, like your grandma, like your grandma's got right. osteoporosis, right? Not, right. not Lance Armstrong. Right. Right. Who, and like a lot of, actually, I don't know if him specifically, but a lot of people at that competitive level will have osteoporosis in their hips because they don't do any weight bearing activity. Yes, they're pushing and pulling and they are doing resistance exercise, but that's different than their, their body does not need to be strong enough to support their weight. And so one Bone health is much bigger than bone mineral density. Bone mineral density or bone density, which is often how it's called or referred to, is the cheapest, most simplest measure. So that's why it's been kind of teased out. What also is of importance is their shape. So yes, density, but also their shape. And shape those two things together make robusticity. And if you're talking about bone health, robusticity is really where you want to focus. Let's talk about that, like how that they are built. First of all, bones are built and it's not just eating a chocolate calcium chew that no? does it. Dang it. And, and <laughs> I know that's so good. Right? I, do you remember that commercial? What was that commercial <laughs> with chocolate? Like I was a kid. And I remember oh. there was this commercial where everyone was eating chocolate caramels and that was like healthy bones. And I was like, something is awry. What is going on here? Oh my gosh. You were a kid. Like those are still, well, those are still Maybe like a teen. I, a I just remember when they came out. Yeah, I think so. It's like candy. I we forget. can give them, they will, they will take candy for their health. <laughs> All right. I'm in. Chocolate <laughs> chews. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about how bones are built and what forces mean to their robusticity? And then what are things we can do? Like first, let's talk about how bone cells are made because this is so cool. It's so cool. Well, bone cells are made by your body, but bones are created by the activity of bone cells. Like you have bones, bone cells that build bone and you also have bone cells that remove bone. Your like your skeleton is constantly forming. It's it's being shaped and broken down and shaped and broken down. Well, I'm going to say a lot of this is in move your DNA. So to get a to get a smoother presentation of bone robusticity and a lot of cool examples, move your DNA is better. Plus, there's not a lot of discussion of chocolate chews in it, but free podcast. <laughs> that's how it goes. But it's like, so oh gosh, where do I start with weight? Well, like everyone has a weight, right? So if you step on a scale, that's your weight. And so theoretical weight you know, mass times gravity, your mass times gravity is this like, this is your weight. It always weighs the same. It's like, well, but that's whole body thinking. That's thinking about, or single body thinking, thinking of yourself as a single body. Each one of your cells 
is actually a scale within itself. And so weight is really relative to the scale that's measuring it. So one example that I use is if you stand on that scale, it's like, okay, there's my weight. But if you stand on two scales, if you have a scale underneath each foot, and we use this in biomechanics where we're, we're measuring pressure or we're measuring where you're carrying your weight on your body, you can have a scale under your right okay. and one under your left that are not connected, and you can have more weight on a right scale than the left scale. So even though your theoretical weight is the same, you can carry more of your weight on one hip, right? So if you're standing and you shift your weight from side to side, what does that mean? It means that if I've got all my weight with the exception of a teeny tiny bit on my right leg, my right leg is more weight bearing than my left leg. I've got the same weight, I'm putting weight in air quotes, but it that's really <laughs> theoretical reduction. Weight is relative to the scale that's measuring it. So if every one of your cells is a scale, how you carry your body in space is going to affect the weight that is placed on every single one of your cells. And so if we think of like, okay, let's imagine that in that last example, each hip bone was its own scale. So if I carried constantly my weight on my right leg versus my left, what you would expect to see is less bone in the hip that is less weight bearing. That makes sense? Right. If I that my spine sense. is curved forward all the time, you're going to see bone loss in the vertebrae in my spine that no longer have the other vertebrae stacked above them. And so for a long time, and still really, I think, hyperkyphosis or that forward curve or the dowager's hump or whatever you want to think about that kind of Again, thinking about grandma and our osteoporosis, you know, that that idea of, oh, you have low bone density. The bones aren't able to support the weight of the spine. And so your spine starts curling forward. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it. And this was this was like cutting edge research. I think when I was in graduate school, I don't I'll have to find that source. I posted on Facebook years ago. And I'll, I'll see if I can dig it up for the show notes where the first kind of introduction of the idea of going, well, it's actually more biologically plausible that you've had this curvature in your spine for some time. And that's why you're correlating the curve to the low bone density, meaning that meaning that mm-hmm. you had a particular posture and it's over time you stop loading the bone. And that's why you see the curve and the bone loss go together. Okay. Anyway, so... You have to think about all of your cells as something that are sensing and then adapting or responding to the weight that you're placing on them. There's lots of other forces. There's tensile forces and pushing and pulling and twisting. But if you can figure it out for weight and just think about every single cell is responding to the twists and the turns and the ways that you're using your body, that's it's easiest to do with weight. And then from there, you can go on to all the other different types of forces. But essentially, your bone... Your bones are creating a shape that includes density, so robusticity, that matches the behaviors that you do so that you can continue to do those behaviors more and more efficiently. So you can hold yourself up with more musculature, but that takes more energy than if you just make your bones stronger where that weight can be held more by the non-active parts of your body. So that, that it's just kind of a, it's a call and response. You know, you're just. Yeah. And that's, that's a good time just to bring up. Do you talk about osteoblasts and osteoclasts in move your DNA? No, not, not particularly. Cause I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's that super helpful. I think osteoblasts and osteoclasts are secondary to understanding okay how bone works. And yet it's been made primary. It's like, here's how bone works. It it works on this level. I'm like, well, I'm more interested in the mechanical signals that drive blasting clasts. Okay. I mean, I've written about them before. I've written about them on the, on the blog, you know, where a lot of bone building medication aren't really. So the way I, I always remember osteoblasts building osteoclasts, chewing down, consuming. So a lot of bone saving pharmaceuticals don't really, they're not increasing the amount that bone is being built. 
they're just decreasing the amount of bone that's being broken down. So they can't, there's not a medication that's, that's create, there's no chemical, uh, there's no chemical pharmaceutical drug that has been able to stimulate or to recreate what is a mechanical input, right? Which makes sense. It's a mechanical input. So there hasn't been a chemical that has yet to do a mechanical input. However, since the breaking down of bone, you can halt cellular activity because that's chemical. And so they've been able to stop that. So a lot of times people will stop bone loss, but they're not really building ever building their bone back up. So it's kind of... It's kind of like it's like a semant it's like semantic wordplay the word that it's fit like the the way that it's presented right. it's like save your bone it's like well but breaking down your <laughs> bone is natural so all you get is a lot of old bone and that's not what you right. want either you want new fresh bone and in order to do that you require some mechanical signal mechanical. so I guess that's why I don't really talk about yeah. it too much more because I feel like these other ideas are the pre the precursor to figure out the details of how it works where there's a lot of people who got the details, but they don't understand the driving system. So then there are these things like, well, let's just stop down the chewing of the bone. And I was like, but, but building and chewing and building and chewing is normal. You need this, you need to find, you need to find a good relationship between the two, not just slow down your natural breakdown so that rebuilding can form. Let's talk about why the rebuilding isn't Mm -hmm. happening. Well, let's talk about like that, like shape of that, because when when the first things that you hear, if you do, if you want to fight off osteoporosis or if you have it or whatever is, well, you have to do weight bearing exercises. And so then immediately somebody picks up some dumbbells (laughs) and no, really, though, and they start doing that because in their mind, that's a weight bearing exercise. It's just an extrapolation. It's it's just a misunderstanding or or it's not a misunderstanding as much as it's a small understanding, you know, about weight being a whole body thing. Well, I mean, I guess we should define that. Well, which part? Well, I guess. What's weight bearing exercise? What creates that? Well, what's no, but what creates that shape? Like why is osteoporosis so concentrated in places like hips or wrists or ribs? You know, like what, what is it? It's just not, that's not just the place where, the minerals like exactly. to leach out of our body in those yeah. three places. Like, why is that prevalence there in those places? Well, okay, so I guess we'd need to go back yes, to shape. It's back, right? it's back to robusticity. So, okay, so let me let me explain it using an example because that's what I do. So, bone robusticity includes the density and the shape of a bone. More specifically, or like in geek speak, bone robusticity is structural buttressing. It's the, it is, it's taking a skeletal element and it's creating a shape that the use of the building requires. So, and this is what's in Move Your DNA. I'm like, okay, if you look at a cadaver, everyone who's taken anatomy should be able to go, that's a femur, that's a calcaneus, like, and even across the animal kingdom, bones have such a similar shape that it's very easy to identify what is what. But you have to think of the femur as a category of shapes, really. So there is something that we, as anatomists, and anyone who's taken anatomy, there are similar features. There are these main features that you can identify. However, every single bone has a, its own snowflake shape. So in Move Your DNA, I talk about baseball pitchers, right? So baseball pitchers, because of the action of their pitching arm, these are professional pitchers, because of the way that they are, and this is also in whole body barefoot too, but applied to why a lot of people have lower leg turnout. When they're throwing the ball, they're not only throwing the ball, they are throwing the cells in their arm. This is so important to get. When you move your body, if I grab a ball and I'm, I'm winding up right now, in fact, everyone's movement break is to, to pretend like they're pitching a ball. <laughs> and I'm just like, I don't even know how to pitch a ball, but I kind of have a kind of a ridiculous overhand going. So I'm throwing over and over again, right? But my throwing involves my arm kind of reaching back behind me. I'm throwing my cells mm-hmm. back behind me and then I'm throwing them forward. I am not only throwing the ball. 
I'm not only moving the arm, I'm moving all the cells within the arm. I'm squishing the air resistance, all these things, which I know because I've seen high level physicists write about, you know, it's like cells can't feel gravity. Cells can't like, this is the, this is the overall understanding is that these forces are so small that they don't make any difference because they have to not make a difference when you're doing a physics problem. But the fact of the matter is cells do feel it. And that's the newer realization. And it's going to take a long time before everyone goes, hey, the way throwing your legs when you're walking because of the gait pattern can make a bunion. It's just it's just throwing them. You're throwing your cells and eventually they hear that input or they sense that input enough that they begin to take a new shape. So so bone robusticity is how It's really how most data is gathered regarding populations that have moved historically over the planet, looking at their, like the remains of different peoples at different times, it's very easy to see how people have moved. So I am reading a paper right now that Machiko, one of our fans, emailed me. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's great. And I'm going to read, I'm going to read the. Where yeah, is she it? has great. Yeah, she it's on my computer. It is called. I see you, Machiko. <laughs> it's like romper room. Oh my gosh, what am I reading? Well, can you not find it? Okay, hold on. Okay, evidence for genetic and behavioral adaptations in the ontogeny of prehistoric hunter-gatherer limb robusticity. Say that five times fast. So that's a title. That's okay. So it's what it's talking about is it's just breaking down how bone robusticity is different between mobility types. So people who primarily locomoted over land or or people who had a lot of aquatic mobility, people who used canoes, a lot of paddling because their bones mm. look different. You have people who have what, what they would call more robust lower legs and hips compared to aquatic I don't know, mobilized, like people, people who just traveled via water or who were on the water paddling every day had a lot more upper body, but it's not only that it's also their foraging strategies and the food availability. So I thought one thing was pretty interesting where they were saying that there was one particular Island where they weren't doing quite a lot of paddling. However, the types of foods that were available there based on the remains of, you know, I guess maybe the skeletons are around this group of people. They kind of knew what they were eating required so much physical processing with the arms. So they would find that in order to make a certain food edible, the amount of upper body work it took. So like there's like pulling and pounding and yes, exactly. Okay. Heavy, heavy labor in the upper body to make something. I wanted to say palatable, but it's not palatable. It makes it edible. Right. So yeah, they still just could have sucked, that but garlic. At least they could eat it. Exactly. Like they weren't mashing up <laughs> garlic and chives and there's yeah. no white wine. It needs a bit more salt. <laughs> so that like that's really interesting to me. Like you your skeleton, again, this is their biography. You mm-hmm. are you are seeing a lot. They can tell that's how they know about handedness in bow oh. hunters and if people used spears versus bows, because you know what those motions are. You can recreate a mathematical model based on the okay, well, this muscle has to be here. This muscle touches here. So if they're using this muscle repetitively, you're going to see a different shape on the right arm versus the left arm. Even though they are both humeri, humerus is the name for the upper arm bone. Even though you're looking at two humeri on the same person, they have the same shape depending on how you're evaluating shape. If it's the shape of a humeri, awesome. If you're looking at muscular attachments, though, you will see that a used arm has a different robusticity. It's bigger. It's stronger. It was generating more force. On the pitchers, the baseball pitchers, they actually put curves in their upper arm bones, meaning wow. their upper arm bones That's began right. to twist in the same way because, again, they're throwing their cells. So they actually they twisted their arm bone so not their arm bone with its same shape rotating back in the socket, meaning the lower arm had rotated relative to the upper arm. They had put a twist within the bone themselves. They will be identifiable in the future 
as pitchers when you're looking at their skeleton based on how they're what they're the story that's in their bones, if you will. I love bones. I'm such a bone geek. It's so cool. And it's kind of, I mean, I feel bad or it's just sad that, that this information, okay, so they've applied it on people they're digging up, essentially, you know, they can tell yeah. what they did. But then that translating into the general public's knowledge of how to, you know, create bone res- robusticity, that's really hard to say, robusticity, robusticity, robusticity. <laughs> But that knowledge or understanding of how to create that, it doesn't translate. It translates into chocolate chews, you know, calcium chews, instead of you are how you move. Because yeah, that, that, there's no one's job. No one's job. It's because it's, it's, I've made it my self-appointed job, but that's not really, there's no one selling bone robusticity. Although, is that really the case? I mean. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's just. People have said, like, I think, again, it's just, it's the vehicle, the the understanding is there. Here's how bone works. Here are the populations. So, like, you were saying, you know, what about people with their ribs and ribs, wrists, spine, certain vertebrae in the spine, mm-hmm. and the hips, specifically the neck of the femur, your thigh bones. Those are your areas of greatest risk for bone loss, meaning that when you look at our population of people, that's where the way we move is most likely to generate areas that fracture. So that's what that's what that means. What do we know? People know they're supposed to be doing. Okay, so we, earlier on, we, we were going to clarify this idea of weight bearing exercise. Yes, they do think that it is understood quite well that people need weight-bearing exercise to improve the health of their bone. What's not understood is what weight-bearing exercise is because weight-bearing exercise is considered always as a whole body phenomenon. I remember meeting a woman a long time ago, a young woman who had, and actually it's actually now that I think about it, there's a few people who had osteoporosis in their spine in their 30s, in their late 20s, in their early 30s, who are runners. And they're like, but I'm doing weight-bearing exercise. And that's when I had to say, your whole body is doing weight-bearing exercise relative to a scale that you are running across. Relative to the cells in your lumbar spine, you are not doing weight-bearing exercise. Running is not weight-bearing exercise to to all of the spots in your body. It's only relative, it's only weight bearing between your feet and that which you are running on, which is the ground. Or if you were on a scale, if you were standing on a scale, your body would show your weight. If you were running across the scale, your body, the scale would show two to three G's, two to three times your weight. So if you weigh 150 pounds, when you're standing on a scale, then what's between, it's essentially the soles of your feet are experiencing 1G. When you run, the soles of your feet experience 2 to 3Gs, but that does not translate to the area in your spine receiving 2 to 3Gs. And that's the problem right there, is that it's not understanding that weight is relative to the scale that's sensing it, and that you have scales everywhere in your body, and the way that you move can is dictating where your bone goes. Slapping on a weight vest does not mean that your hips are experiencing Mm. more weight. If you have a curved spine or you wear your hips out in front of you or you slightly bend your knees or your rib thrust, adding a weighted vest to your torso does not translate into greater weight-bearing status of your hips. Even though if you're wearing a scale underneath your feet, it would be. So what you see on a scale as far as weight goes is not distributed everywhere throughout the body. That's heavy stuff, man. Thanks for helping me flesh that out. Yeah, that was, that was, no, that was good. That was really good. Thank you. I think that's exactly what, what I was hoping you would do. Yeah. Yay. You're so good. You're like, oh yeah. <laughs> you're like a snake charmer. You're mm-hmm. like, okay. Nee, 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 nee. And I'm like, what can I do? I'll just keep talking. <laughs> but yeah, that that's the big, that's the misunderstanding right there is that whole body weight bearing exercise is not is not site specific weight bearing exercise mm. and osteoporosis is a site specific disease so uh, i just got a text from a neighbor and she was like my mom just has osteoporosis and 
you know, and, and I, I'm going to have her walk a mile on the treadmill or she walks a mile on the treadmill, but like, what else should she do? I'm like, well, one, you know, is she walking in heels, you know, in a heeled shoe? Because like, if your hips are out in front of you, you have a heel on, you could be taking the weight off of your hips just by the shoes that are underneath your feet. And so it's just just geometry. It's like geometry and a little physics and a little biology. Mm -hmm. And we call it biomechanics. It's awesome. Anyway. Bones are interesting. And I like that thought about every little cell has a scale. Every little scale she has is magic. (laughs) Every little cell wears a backpack. (laughs) Okay, I know. It's a good way to look at it. It definitely increases. Go ahead. Every cell is also wearing your shoes. Yes, yes, yes. I feel like I'm not even writing anything original anymore. I just changed the body part. I'm like, every cell is wearing a backpack. Move your DNA. Every cell is wearing your shoes. Whole body barefoot. I just, <laughs> I just changed the nouns. <laughs> it's awesome. Well, I, I like that focus on it because a lot of times when you read, I mean, there's so many research articles out there, but a lot of times it just does focus on the areas that they're studying the nutrition and the vitamin D, you know, the sunlight. And they don't really talk about more modern physical activities. Well, we have a hard, we don't see ourselves again. This is a common theme. The filter through which research is done is not looking at us as a particular type of human. Like we're just calling ourselves, like we're just humans. This is what humans do. So I'm like, well, it makes a difference the questions that you ask when you don't see yourself as the model human and instead see yourself as a set of behaviors. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I think that it wouldn't maybe occur to someone. So like the people who are doing the bone bo- bone robusticity research are usually physical anthropologists. They might be bio- biomechanists who are working in physical anthropology but an anthropologist's entire filter is there are lots of different types of human, like their cultural competency is very high when you're an anthropologist. If you are a physiologist, you might not have the same background in how different people behave on this planet right now. Like you, cultural competency is huge and it's probably lacking quite a bit in 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 the sciences across the board it's just not like if you're a phys- if you're a physical scientist or any kind of science like science was your field so you probably didn't take a whole lot of cultural competency anthropology classes right that's mm. the problem with educate like that's the problem with education is like i just did math and science so i studied this and and if you if you don't have a filter that like if you haven't traveled quite a bit and seen or, you know, or studied humans of different types and mm-hmm. you are just given human anatomy, a human anatomy textbook that was filtered entirely through a Western human's perspective, you're going to ask right. questions. You're, you're going to ask questions with that narrow scope. And so that's sure. all that's happening. Sure. But, but the great thing with the internet I know. is that's all changing. Plus also, that you can stream Top Chef. That's the other good thing about the internet. <laughs> no, but it's true. And it's important. You know, I used to get so annoyed that doctors didn't know stuff about biomechanics when I started studying your work. But then you just had a really good point is how can you, you cannot do that all. You know, they cannot be expected to know all that. And you got to give them a break and well, why would, take why personal would it, responsibility. But that's like saying that I should know a lot about medicine and veterinarian science in English like well I think you should or why don't you know more medicine why don't you know more medicine it's like why don't like why doesn't your like why is the doctor it's a good point and well then that's often a question you know when people start learning this stuff in classes they'll say well how come my doctor never told me that and I just say you know why should they be responsible for all that but it's also that's also a cultural that's a that is a particular cultural perspective of authority where your right. your doctor is supposed to know every single thing about the human body and not just medicine. It's the you have transposed medicine over everything there is to know about the human body. I'm like, if if I'm if I need my life saved, you bet I'm going to someone who's specialized mm-hmm. in saving lives. But that's different than getting all my body information from a particular field that is, you know, supposed to keep you alive. Like those just different it's a different field, but 
but we've only created a few fields for our academic system. So there really isn't like who you, it's you, it's just you, it's you, it's It's, you and, and you're listening. So you are slowly gathering data about it. So well done. Well, I got a couple of disturbing facts. (laughs) (laughs) Just in the USA by 2020, what it, where it's 2016 now, it's expected that the incidences of osteo, the cases of osteoporosis will be up to 14 million just in America. And there is projected to be over 47 million cases of low bone mass. And I found this really interesting. By 2050, the worldwide incidence of hip fracture in men is projected to increase by 310%. Now... Do they think they think there's going to be less or are they just trying to diagnose it more? I think they're just, well, I don't know. That's just, they're going on what they've got now and how Mm -hmm. fast it's growing. And also how many more, more people there'll be. Right. And how many more the population increase. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about, okay, so we know that the, the four main places that osteoporotic fractures, is that how you'd say that would. Fracture risk. Yeah. Well, I fracture, I got, but osteoporotic. Let's mumble it. Okay. I talk about the fractures. Spine, hips, wrists, or forearm, and ribs. Ribs. Yeah. Why? I mean, I think I know why, but can we talk about why is that so prevalent in those four places? Or do you want to? Well, those are, I mean, those are going to be, those are areas, they're areas for the most part where things are already pretty thin. So a lack of use is going to make it mechanically most susceptible, right? So if you take, the entire skeleton and reduce its bone mineral density where it's going to be most at risk for fractures will be the areas that are thinnest. So it isn't to say that those bones, like people say, well, that's just then where you're designed to fracture or however they want to phrase it. It's like, well, no, those are the areas that if you don't move hardly at all, which we don't, will mechanically be at greatest risk. Okay. Why? Though also, that's like whole body, whole body reduction. But site by site, gosh, I covered hip bone density in my first foot book by really saying, mm-hmm. you know, if everyone's wearing a positive heeled shoes, everyone's going to have let like their hip weight bearing status is going to be lower just geometrically. And when you and then I, of course, I also in hidden kyphosis is something else that I talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. which is we all have this, again, I think a lot of this is in movie or DNA. I think that most of us have hyperkyphosis, but we mask it through rib shearing and thrusting our pelvis. So if you cut those two things right there are going to be makers of low bone density in the hip joints, as well as the vertebrae, you're going to be significantly altering the loads. Plus you're also going to be overloading particular vertebrae. So you're going to be you're going to be underloading some of them and then overloading some of them. As far as ribs go, if anyone's been ever following a lot of my work, you'll find that I talk also a lot. This is in diastasis recti, how little the rib cage actually moves. So breathing is a phenomenon where your thoracic cavity, or you beat on it if you're doing Tarzan, that part of your body has to increase in size in order to drop the pressure to get more air to come in. And so you have a few different ways of increasing the size of it. Your diaphragm can drop down is usually how it's explained. Hey, you just breathe, your diaphragm drops down and like air comes (laughs) in. It's like, well, you also have in between every single one of your rib bones, muscles that open the the ribs, they kind of flare out all around you, right? So those- You can feel that too. You can, some people can, some people can, some people don't have much of it at all. So if you've lost that mobility, if your inter and external, your internal and external intercostals, which are the muscles in between the ribs, those are practically, they're just atrophied and non-working in most people. So, and when people will come, I'll do a lot of breathing type of work where I'll have people go into a spinal twist so that their abdomen can't inflate. And I'll have them in some position where the only way of really increasing the size of their container is by using their muscles in between the ribs and they can't even take a breath because there's just no mobility there. They're thrusting their ribs. 
they are doing all kinds of weird things, holding their stomach in and whatnot. Anyway, all of that and over time, plus a lack of really using the upper body well and varying through different rates of breath, you know, like on a daily basis, are you exerting and breathing deeply and shouting and all these different natural movements, you just get, you get atrophied muscles in between the ribs and that's what's pulling on the ribs there. So some, some bones have a job of bearing weight, like your hips, the ribs don't really bear weight. They're, they're being pushed and pulled by the activity of the muscles around the area of um, your thoracic cavity, which don't do very much. Wrists, I would say, you know, once again, you're just like keyboarding is not weight bearing exercise, <laughs> you know, so that's hanging and um, again, hanging ten, ten, tensile loads are really good mm-hmm. for building bone too. It's not just compression. It's also That's good to know. tension, push and pull, push and push pull, and pull because it's still going to have to stay strong to resist pulling, right? Pulling is something mm-hmm. that could potentially fracture. So, so if you pull gradually, right, all this is transitioning to better bone density, your body responds. It's true. Well, if you notice people that have problems being on all fours, like in an exercise <laughs> class or whatever, So they avoid that because it hurts, but really it's never going to get any stronger if you don't have that, that load on it. I took a yoga class full of young people, younger than me. I'm 40 now. So they are young people and the number of people on their fists instead of their wrists, the people shaking out their wrists Mm -hmm. due to fatigue and the main difference. And I, I knew a lot of them and what their movement behaviors were. The main difference is they don't do hanging up or like they their way of using the wrist is keyboard to full-on like downward dog hand like just full-on right, weight bearing right. like they don't they don't have a very of all the things that the wrists can do pushing and pulling and swing and you know all these other 360 degrees and types of loads all they do is just bear down on their wrists uh-huh and i was like man i have a new saying it's wrist for wrists <laughs> It's instead of fists for wrists, everybody. (laughs) If you have pain, fists for wrists. Now it's just wrists for wrists. Wow, that required context because I was like, is that a version of tit for tat? I don't even know. (laughs) All right. So, yeah, you know, if getting into quadruped and being on your hands and knees is painful, like that's a sign that you aren't loading your wrists regularly and well. So, make that a priority. Which brings us right into what are some changes that we can make to increase the robusticity of of our bones? Some basic for for those troubled areas. The answer is if you want to increase the robusticity of your bones in a particular area, you need to move in a way that uses that area more. So it's everything that everything that I've already said, transitioning to whole body barefoot is also transitioning your body to better bone density. Fixing your diastasis recti is also fixing your bone density. I've written the books with particular titles, but I'm not really ever targeting. I put fixed diastasis recti because that's how people need to hear it. Sure. But it really is all this way of moving kind of repairs the entire system. You're just a system. Well, You're to both- be fair, you do put whole body in all those titles. I do. Too, so. I had to. Like I'm like, okay, I will write this book if you let me put whole body in the title because... You're not just fixing any single thing. The entire system is flourishing. And you're reading these stats about these huge incidences. And it's like, you can look at it in one way, which is, oh my goodness, we have an epidemic, like a disease epidemic on our hands. And that's the way that it's portrayed. It's portrayed as this huge epidemic disease. But that's that's like having a whole bunch of people who didn't eat for three days voluntarily saying that there's an epidemic of hunger. Right. You know what I mean? It's just, like, yeah. you ha- if you call, if what do we call hunger? We just, we know hunger is like, you just need to eat. Hunger is just how you feel when you don't eat. It's not a disease. If you, and if you looked at the, you know, what, you, how your stomach behaves, you know, when you're on a lack of food, if we started calling those things a disease and start looking for some sort of tablet to decrease stomach acid production, and can I get something to, you know, calm my mind when hunger creeps up? Like we're treating these things like diseases rather than like it's if it's a side effect of not moving. It's like, well, 
let's just talk about it the way that it is. It's okay if you still can't move, but you don't want the issue to be portrayed as something different than it is, which is you have to move. There's right. like, there's a baseline of eating. There's a baseline of moving and we are not meeting it. The end, you know? Yeah. Or the beginning, true, the beginning. True that. Yeah. yeah. It's just finding a boundary and moving on from it. Yeah. Love so it. anyway, start with whole body barefoot. That's, that would be my thing is start with whole body barefoot. Okay. This is the best way to work through my books, whole body barefoot, because I think that if anyone just read that, they would be shifting their whole body, you know, kind uh, of everywhere. Uh, then, oh, thank you. Um, move your DNA and then diastasis recti. Those would probably be getting you pretty golden. You'd feel, you definitely feel pretty good. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Is that it? Uh, did you know that you kind of sound like Amy Poehler? Because I started listening. <laughs> I've read I've read through Move Your DNA three times. And every once in a while, you'll bring something up. And I'll be like, was that even in there? I thought, you know what? On my morning walks, I will start listening to it. Because sometimes you just, you know, you take in information a little bit differently. Oratorily, I guess. Or orally, that would be. Than reading it. And I've picked up all this stuff. But you sound a lot like Amy Poehler. I, only one other person has told me that from a long time huh. ago. Everybody's probably thinking it. Just probably. one other person besides me had the guts to say something. It's awesome, though. It's fun to listen to. And and again, it's so funny because it's like three times I've been through it, but just in two days, I've picked up all sorts of stuff. I'm like, when was that in the book? Yeah, very interesting. I wonder if anyone's ever. It's told like an everlasting gobstopper of information. I know it's pretty ridiculous. Just keeps coming. And speaking of everlasting awesomeness. Can I tell him yes. what's going on in May yes. for reals? Yes, for reals. So excited. Do it. Every, everybody. So I live in Boulder, Colorado, which is a pretty cool place. And my friend Katie is coming to Boulder on May 21st. Yeah. And she's been here before, but I'm going to show her some cool stuff while she's here. But she's also, we're going to, we're going to do like kind of a, a meet and greet, record a podcast at this really cool bookstore. It's very well known. It's called Aptly the Boulder Bookstore. But yeah, I hope you all can make it. There'll be more information on the website and we'll put some stuff in show notes as we get it. We're still kind of figuring everything out, but put that on your calendar. Save the date, May 21st. Come see us. It's the save Come the date. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. It's an STD. That is so cool. Everybody, I'm excited. <laughs> I've been waiting to slip that in. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Oh. Anyway, that's this was fun. Yeah. I love bones. Thank you for making me think differently about bones. Yes. And thanks for having bones because this podcast could be very hard to do if you did not I'm have a skeleton. So happy I do. All right. Well, thank all you right. all for listening. For more information, books, online classes, etc., you can find me at nutritiousmovement.com. You can learn more about Danny Hemmett, Bone Haver, and Osteoblast <laughs> Coach Movement Warrior at MoveYourBodyBetter.com. Bye, everybody. We hope you find the general information on biomechanics, movement, and alignment informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and shouldn't be used as such. 